The Insurance Brokers Podcast is brought to you by Sarah Myerscoff of Boston Tullis. Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerscoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Okay, good afternoon, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. It's really great to have you here. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for having me on. I'm sure anybody that's listening to uh, the Insurance Brokers Podcast has heard me talk about your book because any recordings I've done over the last couple of weeks, I've been saying, I'm reading this really interesting book. So, um, so, uh, well, you know, it's been fabulous, really interesting. So, Brian, I've had lots, I've learned lots from your book. Way that you've gone about writing it is really interesting. I wonder if you want to introduce the concept, the idea, where it came from, uh, to the listeners. Yeah. Well, so it's it's part of a series, and I I give sort of a high level on the series and why this particular book needed to be written because originally it was only supposed to be one book, not a whole series. Um, so. I'm, I'm a carrier guy for 20 years on the PNC side, and then I left after running claims for Hiscox, which I'm sure many of the, the Brits listening will know the name in the US, it's less known, but I was running claims for Hiscox in the US. And uh, I had started to be an early customer of this InsurTech startup that was helping carriers in claims with communication. They asked if I would join, I said yes. And so I got to see the other side of the coin, um, you know, and sort of like w- what's going on from a technology standpoint, from a change standpoint. And my role was specifically growth. So I was the one out, you know, visiting all these carriers, trying to, to drive business and, uh, and help, help us succeed, um, which means I was sitting with all of my former peers at these carriers, talking to them about their struggles and, you know, how we could help with them, but also why they were afraid they wouldn't be able to implement the solution or why it sounded great, but was too hard because of politics and technology and budget and, you know, all the things that we bemoan in the industry that are very real, um, but we can still do something about it. We can still find a path through to be better. And, you know, pre-pandemic, it it was necessary, but maybe less of a burning platform feeling. And then everyone goes into lockdown and it literally becomes a question of, can we even keep the lights on? You know, you can't just not um, resolve claims for the next year and a half or whatever it's going to be. You can't just park your new business growth because you can't meet with people in person and that's the only way you did it uh you know life insurers like well we can't go get blood and and whatever other fluids we need and medical records and this sort of thing so we're just going to say no new business for the next year or two like that is unacceptable so even though it's hard we can still find a way through and what i found was there's a really important need in the industry to share some of the stories of those who are doing it so that we can all take a bit of inspiration and see, well, hey, you know, they're facing a lot of the same constraints I am. They got through. Maybe I can too. Um, and so it's a bit of like a self-help book, if you will, for, for the industry about how we can, we can overcome. Uh, I have taken an awful lot from the book, and I'm obviously not trying to set up a carrier or an MGA, but some of the, the, the stories that you've talked about have resonated with me yeah. from a mindset perspective there's a massive amount of mindset and there's a there's like an entrepreneurial 
drive that yeah. is clear through each one of these stories that you've talked about, whether you come from corporate background, insurance or, or elsewhere, yeah. that that's very well, clear. I love, that, I love that you take that because some people get frustrated. They're like, you didn't tell me which specific technology I should implement for this specific issue. So, well, that's, you know, that's a bit irrelevant. Like we can figure that out. We can talk about your needs and what's out in the market and all that. But if that's what you're looking for, hire a consultant to solve that particular need. That's not what's going to change your business. And it is values and mindset and attitude and how you're interacting with your customers and your employees and how much lip service versus actual empowerment you're giving to all of those constituents who are so important. And you're right to point out, this isn't just for people at carriers or thinking about being at a carrier or starting one. It's, uh, you know, the, the case studies in the first book were, were seven legacy insurers. I think the youngest, you know, the youngest turns 99 this year. Most wow. are already over a hundred. So you know, they're, they're companies that have been around for a while. And of course, myself, having been around the London market for a while, we're talking hundreds of years. So, um, you know, it's, I thought it was really important to start there. But the second book is all startups. And this is where, you know, for me, the, the, the idea of the startups was this disruptive threat in the first book. So we had all of the things that sort of handcuff us or the headwinds that we face as we think about change and, and all the reasons we can't. And not only are customers demanding a change from us, but we now have this fire lit under us from all of these disruptive startups who seemingly have you know, nothing but freedom to do whatever they want. And you know, they're super tech savvy and they all come from outside and they're bemoting us and calling us stupid and lazy and backwards and all this. So it's a very sort of adversarial, um, unfair feeling. And I wanted to speak to that. So that was the first book. And what I realized coming out of it is well, look, and I say this, uh, I say this phrase too much, perhaps I need a new catchphrase, but grass <laughs> is not green anywhere unless you, unless garden. you garden. I picked right. that up. That was yeah. one of the things I wrote down. It's, I don't <laughs> know why it hit me a few years ago and it wasn't talking about insurance, but I was like, oh, it's brilliant. Because what we tend to do is, you know, we, we look at someone else on Instagram and how perfect their life is, or we read a case story or better yet, you know, as we're starting to go to conferences again, whoever's on stage talking about what they did, it's, it's all polished. You see the PowerPoints and it's the perfect, we, we went with this vendor and it was faster than we expected in the scope. Like we out delivered it and it was cheaper and the ROI, like that's not what happened. We all know that's not what happened. It wasn't perfect, but that's what's presented. So we can look at these startups and say, oh, they have it so easy. That's not relevant to me. And in fact, they don't. They have some of the same, same barriers you have. They have plenty you don't have and they have threats you will never have. And they lack a lot of the assets that those of us who are, you know, I say those of us because I was on the incumbent side, those of us in the incumbent space, whether it's broker, carrier, whoever, um, we have a lot at our advantage, uh, to our advantage that they don't have. And so I felt rather than just seeing them as adversarial, why don't we dig in and learn? And that was the genesis of the second book is eight case studies of startup insurers. And I use the term a bit, um, a bit loosely because some are MGAs still. Some are already carriers and they were MGAs. One of them was an agent, a digital agency or broker, and then an MGA and then a carrier. Um, but there's so much to learn from it and to learn regardless of where you sit. Because mm. the lessons, as you say, it's more about mindset and approach and thinking about what you face in a different way, which often takes breaking out of your context a bit. One of the, um, one of the things that I really liked, so, you talk about uh, seed funding and different rounds all the way through, yeah. and there are some big numbers, right? Yeah. Big numbers Especially that are in the happening. the US market where they're a bit insane, yeah. Yeah, it, like it's intense. And, and I was kind of looking at it, 
you know, from from my inexperienced uh, view of, of of that type of scale and that type of investment. And I was sort of looking at it in some of them, like they hadn't even started trading and they were on their like second, third, fourth round of seed. In the hundreds uh, of millions thing. raised already. Yeah. Yeah. And I was starting to feel, you know, agitated and, oh my gosh, how are they going to manage this? But that's what I really liked about it. Because you've given the good, the bad, the ugly, you've given like the, the you know, the existential crisis points yes. at where this could go wrong. Yeah. And for many would go wrong. And I loved. Um, and for some did go wrong. And yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I loved the uh, the uni guys. Um, oh right, for Beam Dental. Beam, that's Great it. Friends, beam Dental. Yeah. Um, to have you know to have thrown it all in with actually very little life experience yeah, and have no, gone in, yeah. done a little bit of kind of consultancy and gone. Oh, I'm going to make this toothbrush. To then go out and find that the entire market's gone. Yeah, not really that interested. Yeah. The 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 resilience and the power of mind and self-belief in what you're doing to go into a market you do not know with a proposition the world has told you is flat yeah. and still make headway is an incredible, an incredible feat. Yeah. How, how, which begs the question, right? How do you know whether you're flogging a dead horse <laughs> or whether you should just keep going for that extra round of funding and hope yeah. a bit more? What, yeah. what, what came across to you out of all of these stories well, where people so, knew which way? Yeah, so I, I think that's a brilliant example because, and, and I said this in the book, that that was the moment, you know, they, they had this connected toothbrush that the data coming out of it could drive underwriting and could change the losses. It was brilliant, um, really, really great idea. And they pitched it to all the carriers to make this money losing line that is dental insurance profitable. It's, it's an also ran add on that basically all but one carrier in the US essentially just add to their other benefits um, offerings because they have to, to be able to compete. You have to have the complete offering. And so dental is gonna be shopped even though you don't expect to make money on it, you're probably gonna lose 10, 20 points. Um, so because of that, there's no ROI in dental, which means there's no money to invest in dental. So the entire industry, and they talk to every major carrier literally, said, no, it's, haven't you heard dental's a lost cause, just give up and leave us alone. That's the moment where most founders would say, pack it up guys, we failed. Um, great journey, we sold a few too, because they were selling the toothbrush themselves. Yeah. And, you know, we made a little bit of money on that. Um, we had fun, what a great ride. Let's get, we're engineers, let's figure something else out. But because they're engineers, when you tell an engineer uh, the answer is no, or it's impossible, they add something to that sentence and that's right now. So yeah. they will say, well, why don't we try to figure this out? Because that's what we do. And that is what they do. And so for them, uh, to the mindset point, it was understanding enough about the fundamentals of the idea and the mechanics necessary for it to succeed. And then seeing mechanically, why is it not succeeding? Is that solvable? Whereas a lot of us, I think, we're used to that no. And so when we hear it, we just sort of deflate and go on to the next thing until we clock out that day. But you make a really good point, and I forget which particular business it was, but um, and it might have been uh, Beam, and it is um, why? What is the data supporting your no? And there was one pivotal moment where the, 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 the knower, uh, the person who's saying no, went, um, well, yeah. there isn't any, actually. Yeah. Like, well, so it was, uh, Kin was the example there, and they, okay. um, Kin was a startup homeowners insurer, and they, they were an MGA at the time, and they said to their front and carry, you know, we want to do X, and the front said, no, you can't do that, it's illegal. And they had been getting all these, it's illegal or it's impossible answers to literally everything that they wanted to do. 
And so finally, you know, I think they were so um, just over it and, and annoyed that they just said, okay, show me, show me the law, show me where, where that's the way it is, show me why it's impossible. And what they found out is time and time again, there was no evidence, it was industry lore. And I think a lot of us are used to that. It's, it's passed down or someone was afraid of something or they misunderstood something because some of these regs are not always easy to interpret or one person's interpretation is different than another's. Mm -hmm. And when luckily the fronting carrier was willing to look into it and found actually it is completely legal, it is doable, we were wrong. And so then they moved mm -hmm. ahead. And, and it's the willingness to challenge um, is really critical. There's, there's a few other things you need in place to be able to do that successfully. Uh, and that was, you know, the, the team at Beam had some other things at their advantage, being engineers, having access to, um, you know, capital and uh, the ability to do something with that data and, and monetize it in a way or, or bring it into the equation. Because if they were just building a toothbrush and didn't have any of the other skills that they had built out over the years through their consulting practice, they wouldn't have been able to do that. But, you know, as they say, like in hindsight, Steve Jobs' famous talk about connecting the dots in hindsight, um, that's really what they had done. They'd worked in all the little bits and pieces, the data science, the app development, the hardware development. They had done a lot of um, work in a regulated space on patent writing. So they were really comfortable and familiar with the idea of needing to write things for legal reasons, needing to stay compliant with them, how you research that, even though it was a different kind of compliance the mindset was what an engineer can lift and drop into a different context. And they also recognize we don't know everything, so we want to pull in more talent and more skills, but it was that, that openness to it. Um, that's mm -hmm. really critical. And sometimes the answer is we looked at it and actually we still don't have the ability to do this, so maybe the answer is to pack it in. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, it's we've distilled what the holdback is. Here's how we think we can solve it. Is that a business story? And one of the great ways to test it is start talking to investors. Mm. And what they found is it was quite, it was quite intriguing to them. Um, and so they've done a number of raises. Uh, it's, it's one of this issue, these issues I had with writing the book about startups, it, there's always some news coming out. And so I'd finish the case study, because this is all firsthand research. I sat with the companies virtually, um, you know, lots of interviews and discussions and um, this wasn't like I just read a bunch of PR pieces they had put out and then kind of told my own story on it. So I'd put in all this work in the case study. I'd finish it up and say, okay, that one's done and dusted onto the, oh, no, here's a press release. <laughs> they, and it, and as one I had to bring, it was like, so Beam raised, I think $80 million, like the week after I had written the case. And so I'm like, okay, going to reopen that file and, and update that. And it happened time and time. One of them raised $250 million while I was like just wrapping things up. And of course they can't tell you any of that while you're meeting with them. So they're like, oh, we wanted to let you know, but you know, we weren't allowed to. So uh, wow. yeah, the stories had to keep it. And, it. and it happened like the day before the official launch of the book, another major funding round was announced um, for branch insurance, another one of the cases in there. And yeah. they're like, oh, I just talked to them the day before and they're like, we wanted to tell you, but oh. so I'm happy for them. It's all good reasons, but um, yeah, yeah. it is. It's such a buoyant, fast-moving space. It is, isn't it? Um, fast-moving, and, and and I think one of the points you make in the book is you can have a day. I think your point is some of these people go through stuff you'll never experience, yeah. that the highs and lows, the depth of those highs and lows in a very 24-hour period. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing, and I suppose you have to be a certain type of person to be able to withstand that. You do, yeah. And and uh, some people don't realize it going in, 
Um, but you know, having been at a startup, it's one of the things you need to look for in recruiting is, you know, it's an exciting job. It looks like a cool place to work. You get shares early on. Like there's reasons why people think that's exactly what they want to do. And it sounds great, but it is a different lifestyle. And, mm. and there's some that balance it better than others. And there's some that are way off the charts, um, you know, in terms of, of the demands that they put on you. So, you know, it can still vary, but startup life is very different from corporate life. And I've worked at some really entrepreneurial corporations, um, but even still, you know, I've worked at Hiscox, worked at Beasley in the US, like both very young in the country, growing really rapidly, fantastic organizations, um, but even still light years away from a true tech startup, which is, mm. um, it's a totally different pace and the uncertainty, the ups and downs, the culture being so tied to the founders' personalities um, and, mm. you know, how they're feeling on any given day. Like, that's all very real. Do you know what? It is very real. And it is it is a, a, um, a dream that I have been living for the last 18 months. Yes, you get um, it. Yeah, 100%. And one of the things that made me chuckle a bit is we've just, we've got a proposal outstanding with one of our um, a specialist insurer in, in, in the UK. Um, and they sent us the procurement forms, right? And there's things like, do you have planning for um, sort of the capacity to do the work and succession if somebody's not there? Well, we're a small team. And actually, that's quite a difficult question to answer yeah. because there is just no way that I cannot be here. It's yeah. just not a thing right. for now, you know. But, yeah. you know, ask me again in a year and I, you know, yeah, you know those kind of things yeah. will start to have come in. But when you're right in that growing, and, and we've spoken before about the other business that we're about to launch as well, you're right in it, it's got to be you, and it's got to be managing every single aspect of every single thing, yeah. whether or not you're the expert in it. Yeah. So one of, the, um, one of the things that you say in your book is, and, I, and you give evidence, and it's something that I've experienced here, you need your, your sort of exec board to be like a whole person, you know, every capability, every different type of uh, personality to make sure you've covered everything off. Now, yeah. my, um, my partner at Boston Tullis is my dad, and we're literally the same person. And we often get caught in our own loops. Yeah. And we often say that we are, what, what we lack is the complete finisher type person. Yeah. Uh, we're both, uh, you know, the ideas excited uh, um, sort of big strategy thinkers. Yeah. So I, I was really interested in that. And we, you know, it sparked off a whole load of conversations that we're having at the moment. Um, tell me a bit about that. What to, give me some of the examples that you talk about in your book. I'm particularly yeah. interested in Thimble. They were a good example of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of them. And I would say it stretches beyond just the leadership, but especially in the leadership, because otherwise you end up taking the whole company in one direction, because, especially to start up. You know, as we were saying before, the, the culture follows the founders and the leadership more broadly. So you, you have to be especially keen on that. Um, Thimble, Neptune, all of them really have these stories where there's a particular skill set that the founders lacked and they rounded out and it was a game changer. And the one that stands out to me because I think it's, it's not what anyone would expect is around compliance. And this, interestingly, this kept coming up literally in every single case, one way or another, either because they had uh, recognized just how important compliance is. And instead of seeing it as adversarial, and I think 
many of us in the industry know what I mean by that. It's, it's like, you know, you have your idea about a new product or a new way of going about it or coverage or pricing or whatever. You want to get it to market and you, you hold compliance at bay until the very last minute because you know they're just going to be difficult. They won't understand. They're going to tell you no. And you go through them and sure enough, that's exactly what they do because what do you expect them to do when you give them no time and you're sort of forcing something down their throat? It's not going to sit well. Um, and so then there's a bit of a battle and maybe someone more senior overrides them or you all lose and, uh, and you don't get to do what you need to do. So that, that's how many of us in the industry operate around compliance. And I've seen a few carriers who think about compliance differently as something strategic. Let's bring it into the ideation phase and see, can we build this in a way that we don't have any issue? And can we bring them along for the journey so that the, the internal watchdogs who are trying to protect us externally um, are part of seeing what the business is trying to achieve so they can think about, well, what are other ways we can do it if we do come up against one of those difficult moments where something's not possible or, you know, seems like it's going to potentially lead to some some hot waters or maybe something that for our brand, that's not how we want to operate. Others may choose like, oh, we'll just pay the penalties and, and so be it. Um, some carriers operate that way, some don't. And, you know, not begrudging anyone, but generally I would think you'd want to operate in a way that doesn't run afoul of regulators. Um, so... A few of these these folks, you know, not being insurance people, um, recognized or had it recognized for them. So in Neptune's case, it was their investor who had just come from the fintech world where he had built a regional bank. So obviously very, uh, very much a regulated space as well. Differently so, but heavily regulated. And he saw in their, their hiring plans, you know, when he was evaluating the company in due diligence, you know, bring in compliance expertise and blah, blah, blah but it was a bit out because they weren't live yet. And so why do you need compliance if there's nothing nothing to comply with because you're not in the market? And he said, you're thinking about this wrong. This isn't the last stage thing that you need to accommodate later. This is something you need in at the ideation and the building phase. And he was willing to pay for that. So of course they were like, okay, you know, that's fine. <laughs> I'm sure it was more strategic than that, but it's, you know, they, they were welcoming of it. It was, uh, it was definitely useful advice. And so they brought in someone uh, to be the chief risk officer who had also that compliance sort of mindset. And talking to, to the founder, it was a game changer for them. You mentioned Thimble. Thimble does episodic and uh, subscription-based professional liability and, and GL and commercial lines, small, small business commercial lines coverage. So think about you're a wedding photographer. If you do this as a side hustle, do you need to have a policy that's 24 7 365 if you just have you know a four-hour engagement here or there and they're sort of ad hoc you don't even know i don't know it's every single weekend so what i would rather have is coverage i can you know flip a switch on my phone enact the coverage for those four hours and pay for those four hours and the rest of the time when i'm not a wedding photographer i don't i don't want to be paying for coverage for something i don't have um, or don't need and so that's a brilliant idea and completely illegal. So this is a case where like, no, that's illegal because in the actual state regulations in each one of the, the various departments of insurance is this conception of the term of a policy. And it is incepted at 12.01 a.m. on day one, all the way through to 12 a.m., 365 days later, except in a leap year. So they're, they're all this annual conception. And so for carriers who have wanted to be more responsive to the way the nature of work has changed, where we have gig work, we have people doing multiple side hustles, um, we have people who are doing sort of this episodic thing, or especially in the face of the pandemic and the uncertainty that brought, you may be an ongoing business, but you don't know if you're going to 
go on much longer. So should you be paying for an annual policy? Is that more commitment and cost than you can handle right now? You're taking everything day to day, maybe if you're lucky, month to month. So what if we could do this as a monthly thing, just like you know, so many other things that we have in our lives these days. But there is no conception in the regulations for that. So existing carriers, the only way you could solve for it is to cancel and rewrite. So when someone wants to switch it off, you cancel their policy. When they want to switch it on, you rewrite it. That's unbelievably labor intensive. Uh, if you've been in a carrier, I'm sure you know what cancel rewrites are like. There's lots of uh, financial adjustments. The policy number will change. So from a customer standpoint, it's not great. They're not just turning their coverage on and off. They're getting a different policy every time. And each one of those moments, depending how long it's been, they may have to reapply for coverage, which means why wouldn't they just go to market? If I have to fill out an app for you, I might as well see if I can get a better deal. So each one of those cancel rewrite moments isn't just turning coverage on and off. It's a time where someone might attrite and go somewhere else. Uh, if they're working with a broker or an agent, they might go direct or vice versa. So it's, it's not just cumbersome to do things that way. It's incredibly risky for your business's success and growth and or it could be shrinking. Um, to solve for that took a really strong compliance capability because you need someone who not just understands what the regs are, which say you can't do this, but actually is willing to help you engage with each and every state regulator in all the states you want to be in. And by the way, the ones you really want because they have the most economic activity, like you know, Florida, uh, Florida California, uh, New York, like they also tend to be the most difficult. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. they have the, the most regulation. Um, there's many states that are just sort of like, you can file it and start using it, that's fine. 30 something states are like that, really not a challenge, but the states with the most economic activity have quite a bit more scrutiny. Um, and there's waiting periods and review periods and all that. So nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's a lot more to go through. So you must have a good way to engage with those regulators. And you know, you're going against their regs. So you need to help them to see why actually this is a good thing. Because the regulations are there to protect consumers, to cover them, cover them adequately, keep them safe, and make sure those promises are kept by the carriers. So if you're trying to go against that, you have to help them understand why that's of value. And that's not always a tough sell. I'm sorry, it's not always an easy sell. Yeah, but what you've said there actually resonates through the whole book, uh, not just helping the compliance people to see what it is you need them to see, but every single one of these stories has started with a consumer problem yeah. which is absolutely not insurance based at all it's a consumer problem across a whole range of different um industries or you know personal needs i love the uh the guys that went all out to change the medical healthcare system yeah like i mean that that's you did not wake up in the morning and think i'm gonna you know make a really successful business you woke up and you went i'm gonna change the world and it's gonna be really hard <laughs> yeah. and i'm in it for the long run yeah. like that that type that's of mentality is question it's not about like oh we think we think health insurance could be more profitable and lower cost for customers so win-win like that like yeah yeah, it can do that. And the problem is not health insurance. The problem is health outcomes in the first place and how much we're spending for worse outcomes than the money. You know, we, the U.S. spends the most and is like 40 something mm. for um, just just for mortality. And so not that that's the only measure, but like if you've been to the U.S., we're not the healthiest of people. Um, yeah. So it's not working. But what what's what? So I, had a I did a podcast this morning, we were talking about customer journey and we were talking about lots of different things. This idea that you start from where your client at 
is at is is a bit cliched, right? People yeah. jump on that. We're client centric. We're like best customer. Yeah. But it's all over the place. In ninety percent of places, you've you've missed the actual concept. You've missed what this is talking about. So so this idea of customer centricity, um, I'm still telling you why my solution is good for you. You've yeah. missed the point. If that is the, the place you're in, you've missed it and it, yeah. it's not right. Yeah. And something you said um, in the book, and I forget which, which um, case study it was, it was referencing, and, and you'll probably be able to tell me. It was about if, if customers are not buying what you are selling, then you're not engaging in the right way. You, you might have the great product for them, but you haven't, you're not speaking to their wants or their needs. You're speaking yeah. to your solutions. And yeah. so, so that for me was really interesting. And it's something that I believe quite strongly in and you articulated it in a way that I've never been able to. I'm gonna pause that because I've got a yeah. question for you and it relates back to this issue. Sure. So I had a, um, a debate, I suppose. It's a debate we have often because it's fun in, in the office. And David has been in the insurance industry for 40 years, uh, consolidators, you know, senior management, all that kind of stuff. Um, and has done an awful lot of different roles within the, within the insurance industry. So it's, you know, far my senior in every sense in that respect. And I wouldn't um, ever tread on those toes because I can learn a lot from him and I do on a daily basis. But one of the things we talk about often is, since the 80s when, uh, when direct line changed personal lines, right? Yeah. There's, there's been a lot of rhetoric about changes are coming, it's gen like the whole market's gonna change, you gotta yeah. get on it, you gotta blah, blah, blah. But actually, fundamentally, broking is a, is a relationship based business yeah, uh, and commercial insurance is always going to require a person, right? Yeah. So, so is it, has it, will it? And you take that to all of the stuff that your guys are doing and I think it is, will, but not in the way that the world has been telling us. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. And the, the for literally my first day in the industry that's what I got. Someone came and sat at my desk and was telling, I was doing consulting work at a major carrier and they sat down and were telling me about the project we're doing, which is about this e-commerce thing. Like the letter I hadn't been invented by Steve Jobs yet. It was all, E was everywhere. Um, and he said, he's like, you know, you know, this internet, right? We're going to see like no agents or brokers in five years. So this, this internet thing, and it was like, you couldn't just say the internet. It was still like, you had to use other words around it to describe what it was. This internet thing that they've got over there, because we had barely just gotten it in the company. Um, yeah, this, this internet thing is, uh, it's gonna put distribution out and just watch. And I've literally heard that same war cry told slightly differently, but the 20 something years that I've been in the industry and it's not happened. And if you look at the share actually, putting aside personal lines for a moment, which is still largely the same, but has shifted a bit. Um, it's basically held constant. And that's really interesting. I mean, look, I, I worked at Hiscox in the US. We were the only direct writer of small commercial in the entire market. And every single year, McKinsey or someone else put out a report that like, Hiscox is about to have all this competition and the whole market's gonna go that way and just watch. And so every year it was like, okay, are we gonna lose this, uh, this sole player status where we can say we're the largest, the number one direct writer because we were the only. Um, and every year nothing would happen. And then we finally started to have some competition and it wouldn't 
take hold. And now it's a little bit different. There are some players starting to come in. Next Insurance, who I talked about, but they also work with brokers and they just started appointing agents as well. So what what you find is um, this whole like, it's, it's gonna be Armageddon, there will be no agents or brokers. I think that's foolish. Because the reality is that presumes it's just about market access and there's nothing else that anyone would ever need when it comes to buying insurance, which is grossly oversimplifying what risk is. So I don't believe that agents and brokers will be gone, full stop. I think that's ridiculous in any line of business. What I do believe is how they work, what they do will change and has changed dramatically. I mean, for, for people who have been at it since the 80s, the tools they use are not the same. The way that they interact with people are not the same, certainly on the back of the past 18 months or so. So the reality is what we do and how we do it will change as it always has in every line of business, in every industry, that's, that's the world and that's fine. So could we have more digitization, better tools, better intelligence? Does that allow a broker to take a different kind of relationship where they are more advisory and guiding, which is brilliant rather than transactional? You don't want to be transactional if you're an intermediary, because then you're completely the same as anyone else who can transact. And so if someone rocks up and says, oh, I'll do it for this much less, brilliant, transact for me at that much less. That is not a value proposition. So actually, I don't think it's about a threat to the channel. I think if you're not willing to embrace the change in the new tools, then yes, it is a threat to you in the channel, but it's not a threat to the channel. But we have to look at what are the new tools and the new ways of working so that we can create true value uh, so that that insured, whether it's personal, commercial, life, health, whatever, doesn't have a reason to go off on their own. Because actually, I don't think it's about simplicity. I think in many of those cases, they probably will end up with the wrong coverage for what their needs are. They'll end up with the right price, mm. perhaps, but not value. And insurance is not really about how cheap can you get it. Because when tragedy strikes, which it does, otherwise wouldn't be an industry, value ends up being destroyed really quickly if you just did it off of well, what's the cheapest i can get this for and that's when people start making these decisions like oh, okay i'll up the deductible we don't need that much limit that's fine and then your car gets wrecked and you realize could you really afford two thousand pounds right mm -hmm. now like did you think about everything else going on you've just had a baby and diapers are expensive or nappies whatever like it's it's actually really difficult when you're outside of those moments to make the kind of decision you're going to end up making in those moments. And that's what takes the expertise to help guide you through that. You've, I think that this piece is really um, explained well with Neptune's story, mm -hmm. because what they've essentially done for people that haven't, but absolutely should read your book, uh, what they've essentially done is taken a product that was still stuck in the eighties uh, and not, you know, not usable it with today's requirements in terms of, you know, quick, fast, yeah. let's, you know, and efficient. But what they also did, and you talk about it, is recognize there's two markets we're going to attack here. One is the people that have the NFIP product. They know they need flood insurance. Yeah. Let's go and attack them and tell them we can do it better, cheaper, blah. Or not cheaper, but better, che well, whatever. It is, it is cheaper. It is but cheaper. Yeah. But cheaper because of the administrative and operational yeah, processes economics being... allow it to be vastly less expensive. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So they've, they've gone there. But their second market is around education. Yeah. 
why the however many 60 million uh, people who should have flood insurance don't and why they don't. And that, for me, is where intermediaries um, are moving. And and, And you can see a lot of it. It's around this kind of education piece around what risk is, what business risk is, uh, what emerging risks are happening, and, and that kind of education piece. And for me, that's where marketing ties in. That's what we yeah. do. We do the education brand build marketing yeah. to the masses with our clients because of this kind of change. But we, but we still do face some reluctance from, oh, I don't, I don't do marketing. I don't need this. You know, I'm fine as I am. I'm a, I'm a relationship guy and that's it. So we do, yeah. we do face some of those kind of those hurdles, and I, I, I think it's really interesting having yeah. listened to some of this. It's a yes and, because you still need to be a relationship person, but mm. wh- who are you going to have the relationships with? And so, you know, what, what population can you educate so then you can work your magic and, and build those relationships? Neptune has a great offering around flood. The problem is, you know, you're, you're saying 60-something million, 62 million homes in the U.S., that are at moderate to severe risk of flood, 5 million HUD coverage in the last stats that came out. So we're talking about a market that is way underinsured. My house flooded, I say that in the case. I did not have coverage because I'm not in a floodplain. I wasn't required to have it, so why would I? Um, And being an insurance person, I knew I wasn't gonna have coverage in my homeowner's policy, but it's irrelevant. Well, turns out it wasn't irrelevant. And uh, you know, luckily I'm like super risk averse, so I save like crazy, so we weathered that storm, but um, if I, I, I went and priced a policy with Neptune, if I had bought coverage from the day we bought our house, even through to today, I still would have been less cost than paying for the repairs to my home. And it's, you know, we've been here since 2008. So like, you know, years and years on, I'd still have come out ahead buying this coverage. Oh, I'll never need that. The one time I needed that, 40% of my town flooded. It just, it rained so insanely for days that the whole water table rose. It wasn't a, you know, a dam broke or anything like that, which I think is what we think. Um, it has nothing to do with that. There's lots of ways your house can flood. Um, they, if they don't succeed in the education story, relationship or faster processes or simpler buying, none of that makes any difference because mm. there's no one there to watch the game. You know, you'd sell all the, the hot dogs and peanuts you want at the, the baseball game, but if no one even knows what baseball is or why they should come watch or cares about it, you won't sell yes. anything. So it, it is education first. Do you know, I should completely clip that segment yeah. of this podcast and send it to Neptune and say, here's for your marketing. Let yeah. me do the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Um, so you said at the beginning that you intended to write one book yes. and now you're writing a series. Are there yeah. more to come and what are you? What angle are you going? <laughs> so I'm sure there will be more to come. Um, it's, I don't, like I, I just put, as we're recording this, the, the second book just came out last week. So I feel like I, I at least get the right to be like, yeah, I can take a couple of weeks before I figure <laughs> out what's next. Um, I'm not totally sure what the next one is. I have some thoughts about it and um, I've done a bunch of these like clubhouse sessions and and talks that have Q&A and whatnot. And they've always asked like, what should Brian write about next? And I get lots of really interesting ideas. So I'm just sort of in absorbing mode. Um, what I, I think is important is it's not it's not to sell any of the cases in there. It's not to sell the, the companies that are there. They're not ads for anyone. They need to be genuine stories. They need to have a reason to be together in one volume and they need to move the industry forward. 
So I need a space in the market where there's something really interesting going on where we could dig in and take genuine lessons so that I don't care who you are reading it in, in wherever in the industry, an investor or a, a claim adjuster, like whoever, um, you say, I, there's something here that is helping me to see how we move ahead as an industry. Um, so I, I, it's more than just, oh, that's a neat case. There's lots of neat cases out there. I need to have some cohesion to it. And I kind of like this idea that the first book and the second book are sort of mirror images of each other. Even the yeah. colors, like one's green and white, the other's white and green. So there's part of me that's like, is there a blue and white and a white and blue and a orange and what? I don't know. Um, yeah, there's so OCD sort of, kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> I so love I'm it. I'm sort of thinking about um, maybe it's in the agent space, the agent and broker world. So it's distribution. It's it's the you know the, the legacy distribution and then it's the, the sort of new generation. But I don't know yet. Um, that's yeah. that's my inclination. But I'm hearing some really interesting things. And of course, there's people asking, can you stop talking about the U.S. for a minute? Which would be great. The problem I is, would... like, the U.S. has so much insure tech activity that when I do the the newbies or the startups, um, it's actually really hard to find enough meaningful cases outside because it is it, the funding situation is just very different. There are lots of great cases everywhere. Absolutely. Um, there's just almost too many in the US and there's lots of ups and downs that we can talk about. I'd love you to do um, what you've done in book one, which I haven't read, but will, and book two, but based on UK stories. But yeah. like you say, it's a much smaller market. Uh, and although there's you know, a significant amount of PE money in, in the market, yeah. I think the, uh, the way the insure techs has gone is probably not in the same... Uh, same way that, that it's happening in the US. Yeah. Um, question for you, is Clubhouse relevant to the insurance industry? Because I'm on Clubhouse and yeah. I have searched Clubhouse for any of my contacts and they're just not there. There's, Should people be getting in Clubhouse? I, I'm, um, my initial reaction was like, oh God, another social media platform that I can't keep up with. Um, so I was, I was iffy on it. I, I'm not really active in it, but I've been invited to a few groups. There's some insure tech groups. Um, so I've been invited to, you know, share about the book or, or talk in, in one of these. And actually it's really nice. I, I, I do enjoy it. Um, it's a neat, it's a neat platform, not being on video. You know, it's like when you take a traditional phone call, it's almost refreshing. You can like get up and walk around or whatever. So I, I like it. Um, I think it's a great way for us to casually come together on important topics that we all just sort of need to, you know, collaborate around, especially in a time where we weren't co-located. Um, but lots of us aren't co-located, even when we all go back to offices, if that's what happens. So I think there's value to it. I don't know if it's a corporate platform uh, in the way that, you know, Twitter or something like that, you know, the company has a way to engage. Mm -hmm. I think it's more community platform for us. That, mm -hmm. That's my take on it. Um, yeah. I think so too. I think, um, I don't know what the, what the US is like. Um, there's there's a lot of talk in the UK about the sort of the age demographic of the of the insurance industry in the UK. Mm. And I was on a conference, a two day conference over the last couple of days with the Chartered, Chartered Institute of Insurance, and they were talking about this need to get some like young, fresh blood into the yep. industry. Yep. And it's it's a struggle there, you know, really finding yep. it, it difficult. And I, like you, think Clubhouse is for quite entrepreneurially minded. Uh, groups of people that want to share ideas, collaborate, and and get out there, and and yeah. and you know whether that's coming in in the UK or not, I don't know. I've been caught in a load of the the you know the conversations go on for like forty four days or something yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, 
My yeah. wife gets caught in those more than me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they do go on. I, there's a guy in Germany, Dr. Robin Kira, who's very much about social media in the industry. He used to be an agent and um, he's big on TikTok. And I think if you, if you think about engaging as a company, engaging with a younger generation, um, he talks a lot about how to make that happen. I'm, I'm not on TikTok. I don't think I dance well enough for TikTok, maybe. But um, yeah, we, I mean, we have the same conversation here about getting yeah. a younger generation in. And there's, there's a few movements to try to do that. Um, we need more of that, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits of InsureTech is suddenly it gets people who would have thought about, oh, I should go work at Google or wherever. Um, you, you know, you could also think about working at some really cool insurance-related businesses that are genuinely changing things and moving really fast and getting lots of investment and so i think insuretech if nothing else can help us a lot in the industry it may not solve some of the like frontline underwriter and claims adjuster aging out issues although when we have these insuretech carriers um they have all those roles so you know i have friends who are underwriters at some of these startups or uh several of the people who are on my claims scene at hiscox are at uh, a particular startup Mm. Um, you know, handling claims. Two of them are heads of claims at startup carriers today. So it's, uh, it is it is a path to bring newer talent that wouldn't have thought about a 300-year-old company, you know, that's big and monolithic and says that they're non-hierarchical and a meritocracy and all the things. But, um, you know, are they really? It's, mm. it's interesting. I think it could be really helpful for the talent pool draw for the industry. I think that this idea of um, software houses, technology companies, tech-orientated people coming in, to, that's where the entrance is coming, isn't it? And, and there's going to be such an amount, and I think you say it in the book, like we talk about, you know, composites, legacy, we talk about insure tech. 20 years from now, there won't be that divide. It'll yeah. just be insurance. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the morphing that I see happening, which is just fascinating to yeah. watch and even more fascinating to talk about. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, coming to have a chat about your book today. Thank it's you, been Sarah. really informative. It's been fun. Enjoyed it. I'm going to uh, go away and read your first book as well. Okay. So I'll make sure in the show notes that uh, links to both books are there and I would highly recommend you go and have a listen. So thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullus Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.